so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Okay, knock this out. Hello. (laughs) One word in. My voice. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me for the first podcast of this new year is Brent Leatherwood. Welcome to 2023. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Are you one of those people that struggles like when you write the date to go over? To switch? Yeah. Oh, I don't think so always, but maybe. I don't know. Are you? Yeah. Oh. Like I'll I'll be, it'll be like the middle of August and I'll. I'll write the previous 20, year. Yeah. yeah. I, I, more so that happens to me. Like I get it at the beginning and then I just kind of have a brain lapse lapse, and, and things go dark and then I just switch back. Well, so, so did you, did you have a happy Christmas and uh, a wonderful new year? I did. I, I love break time. So I was a little, little, little taken aback that it goes by so fast. It's all that buildup for a year and then the anticipation. It is. And it's then a it huge buildup, yeah. So I'm one of those who gets the post-holiday blues. Mm-hmm. I would imagine you might be too because yes. you love Christmas. I do. I do. Are you already counting down till the next Christmas? Well, I no, because I still feel like we are firmly ensconced in Christmas tide, and, and so I don't want to let it leave. Mm-hmm. But it, it but it felt like it did feel like it moved very quickly. Mm-hmm. I don't know why this year more so than the last few years. It felt like it just, man, it was here and then it was kind of gone. Did you enjoy it, your break? I did. I did. But I'm I'm like this every year. Christmas goes by way too fast. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, it just felt like this year we were just kind of in the holiday season and then, you know, now quickly moving into the new year. Like it seemed now, more rapid it did. than usual. It did to me as well. Now, you're the but president. But I think that's because we're getting old. Maybe. Time, time is a weird thing mm-hmm. as you get older. It does go by so fast. But you're the president of the RLC. So maybe you could decree that— we're going to have a, a month-long Christmas break. Then it won't go by so fast. I think that's an excellent idea. Okay, well, we'll put that on the to-do list for, for looking at uh, for future years. Hey, you have not because you asked not. So, uh, well, it's good to be back after the break. Uh, do you still have your Christmas decorations up? I forgot to ask you that. Yes. How long do you keep them up? If you asked me, you'd get one answer. If you ask my wife, you will get a, a different answer. I look at the holiday see, this is because of what we talked about just now. I look at the holiday season as beginning on Halloween and ending on Valentine's Day. So okay, well, I think that is the appropriate yes. time to have all of your Christmas okay. decorations up. She won't really let me get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> nor nor do I think our HOA will. <laughs> yeah, probably. 
So, well, yeah. I'm one of those who, right after Christmas is over, I'm dreaming about taking down the decorations. I just, Why? I just get tired of it being all cluttered and yeah. just stuff being everywhere. I've got to get it back. However, I will say all of our decorations are down, and the corner where the tree was does feel a little bare right. this year. Yeah. Usually it doesn't. So now you need so. to reclutter it back up with a Christmas tree. Well, I need to figure out something. So it might be an expensive fix if I decide it needs to be redesigned. Mm. But, well, we're we're glad to be back. We it's are. good to see you in person. You are audio producer, Marky Mark. And um, I bet you were in mourning over Christmas because it was an actual white Christmas. All the winter storms. Yeah, but there were winter the, storms everywhere. But the what did we call? What did you call the white mare before we <laughs> the, before well, we I left? I think you called break. it white death. <laughs> yeah, uh, just because you know in the south when you hear about just the mere threat of of snow, things start getting getting canceled. Well, it was cold. It was very cold. I, I did not like how cold it got here. That's got, that, yes. that should not. That should. Talk about something that should be decreed is how the temperature dropped so incredibly fast and how incredibly low it got. So, yeah, that was very made life very uncomfortable for me who loves warm weather. Well, I think it's easier to decree a month-long Christmas celebration <laughs> than— I, I have not yet been imbued with the powers of weather. Like Elijah, where it stopped right. raining. Yes. So, well, my friend—so, you know, Southwest imploded, and I love Southwest— my friend tried to get out for Christmas. She moved her flight to Thursday. She was on the plane for four hours, and then they finally canceled the flight. So this by this time, it was 3 o'clock in the morning. So she went, drove back carefully, because it was bad weather, to her apartment. She has one of those digital locks. It wouldn't open. And she doesn't have a key. And mm. it's an apartment, so she has a landlord. Mm. And the landlord, obviously, was 3 o'clock in the morning. So she cannot get into her apartment. And she's already... Just flustered mm-hmm. because she couldn't get of home. Of course, yeah. So she called me. Thankfully, I answered my phone. And, uh, she At 3 o'clock up, in the morning? 3 o'clock in the morning. Wow. And so I stayed on the phone with her a little bit, and she ended up coming over to our house, sleeping on the couch, and then got into her apartment the next day. Tried to get back out on Monday, sat on her, didn't sit on the plane, but for a couple of hours waited and couldn't get out again. So she's like, forget it. The Lord must not have me going home for Christmas. So this is, or after Christmas, this is crazy. I'll try again later. And at that point, it was because they needed one flight attendant, Mm. which is just wild, 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 wild. What I saw, you know, the basics of it is there, they have an antiquated system that they use to, to track, you know, their pilots and crew and, and also their model of going city to city, as opposed to having hub cities like Delta or American contributed to just this massive failure of their system. Interesting. I and, didn't realize the hub city portion of that. Well, so the way the way there was a couple of explainers in some major newspapers about it and what I took away from it is, you know, it, if you have a bad system in Atlanta, obviously Delta is going to have to cancel some some flights or if you have a a bad system in, you know, uh Dallas where American is based, you you're, you're going to have some cancellations there. But because Southwest relies on crews going from, you know, Nashville to wherever the next city is, like if if they don't make that flight, it just throws their whole system mm-hmm. into chaos. Then you <laughs> and, have no crews. Right. And and they don't have a lot of backups in, in different parts of the country. And so that's just, I mean, to watch that play out day after day, I could only imagine. Thankfully, I didn't have to travel via plane because more than likely mm-hmm. I would have been on the Southwest mm-hmm. plane. 
Uh, and, and so just those folks that were dealing with that, oof, I gosh, I felt for them. Yes, especially over a holiday, which makes yes. it even harder yes. to not be able to get home. Yeah. So while that was certainly a negative over Christmas, actually there was, there was one thing I think is worth mentioning. Each year in the New York Times on Christmas Day, I look forward to reading, there's an interview series that one of their opinion writers, Nick Kristoff, does. And he usually goes and gets, you know, some leading religious figure to, you know, talk about the meaning of Christmas. And he's done, you know, previously he's talked with like Tim Keller. Uh, he's talked with Cardinal Dolan uh, up in, in New York. Uh, and this year he spoke with Russell Moore. And I just thought it was a, a wonderful interview. And so I would just commend it to our listeners because it's a... It's just a wonderful conversation, obviously, between, uh, you know, theologian like, like Russell Moore and here this interviewer who's, you know, a skeptic and uh, really trying to help him understand, you know, the meaning of Christmas, why it's so important to our faith. And uh, it's just, it was a fascinating conversation. Well, while I am sad that the Christmas season is over, I am, you know, I always look forward to a new year. It's a fresh start. Lots of people choose words or Believers like to choose verses that will be the theme that they will focus on for the year. And here at the ERLC, we have things that we are aware of and focusing on and working on at the top of the year. So I want to start talking about what the ERLC has been featuring this week. And I'm really just going to highlight one thing because it's a big deal. It's our latest issue of Light Magazine, and that's our biannual magazine. It comes out twice a year. It's print and it's online, which is a great feature because you can, for free, just go and look at it online, download it online, take the link, pass it on to someone else. But the exciting part about this issue is that this January, we were going to be focusing on the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, you know, the disastrous decision to make abortion legal nationwide. Well, Roe was overturned through the Dobbs decision, so we needed to pivot our plan So the title of this issue is Pursuing a Culture of Life, the Pro-Life Movement After the Demise of Roe versus Wade. And this magazine focuses on the fact that, as we've stated multiple times, just because Roe versus Wade was overturned does not mean that the work of the pro-life movement is over. In fact, in some ways, it's just getting started because abortion rights go to the states. So now you have 50 different states uh, where you are advocating for life in the public square. And there are various rules all around the country. Some states are more pro-abortion. Some states are more pro-life. So there is a lot, a lot of work that needs to be done. And we want to continue to, like Moses, when he had his arms, he was holding up his arms in the Old Testament. He got tired and his brother, and I believe her, was helping him hold up his arms. We want to hold up the arms of those in the pro-life movement as we walk alongside them and work toward a culture that fully embraces the tiniest lives among us and fully embraces those vulnerable mothers and families whom we also need to serve. So just a little taste of what's in this magazine. Uh, We look at a a liberal state like California and what the pro-life movement looks like there. We look at a state uh, more pro-life like Kentucky and what things might look like there. Current SBC president, our friend Bart Barber, talks about working toward the end of abortion, and he discusses the abortion abolition movement and addresses some of the incoherencies there. Richard Land, Dr. Richard Land, who uh, used to be at the helm of the ERLC, has been a longtime advocate for life, and he writes about Roe 
finally being gone, all this work going into the overturning of Roe and what we must do now. I really appreciated his thoughts. Ben Mitchell, a respected ethicist, looks at Christians and the contraception culture now that that Roe is overturned, uh, helping Christians think about how we view life, how we view children, and how can we wisely pursue a culture of life in this way. In addition to a bunch of other pieces that will be helpful for you as you are seeking to educate and equip yourself to be an advocate for life in the places, in the churches, and the communities where the Lord has placed you. So you can go to erlc.com backslash light. And of course, we will link to this issue of Light Magazine. But I hope you enjoy it. I hope you are encouraged by it. And I hope you can pass it along to those in your orbit. Well, as is always the case, we need to recognize you uh, because without you and your efforts and all the editing that you do and just the the great keen eye for putting this all together, this this entire project wouldn't happen. And I love uh, the fact that we produce Light Magazine. And like just looking here on this this main page, we brought together, like you mentioned, Bar Barber, Richard Land, and then two pastors, one from California, DJ Jenkins, and David Prince from Kentucky. And like just that sort of collection of voices in one place like I'm, I'm actually not sure where else you get that, and and you do that uh, for us. Thank you for coordinating all that, Lindsay. And this Light Magazine, it's about life. We've done previous issues of Light Magazine about life, but it's even more relevant now as policymakers and as neighbors in community. Like they're trying to figure out, okay, in this post row moment how do I navigate all this complexity? Because it's no longer just this faraway conversation happening in Washington. It's now happening right in our backyards. And I I think there are multiple pieces in here that uh, will help Christians uh, think through, okay, how how are me and my family going to be a helpful voice in this? And and so this is, (laughs) there's probably going to be multiple uh, future editions of Light Magazine uh, that find us continually revisiting this issue because it's 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 just continuing to play out. I mean, we're getting ready to talk about just another aspect of how this is playing out uh, related to the abortion pill uh, here in just a moment. And so that is just the after effects of such a gigantic decision that you know took place with the the Dobbs uh, Supreme Court opinion, and um, it's going to be a while before all this settles, and uh, and so we're going to keep focusing on it and providing timely uh, resources and thoughtful Baptist kind of commentary on this subject. Well, I just have to add, thank you for your encouragement. I'm going to change that to not an individual but a collective you, because if I put together a magazine on my own, nobody would read it. Uh, so it, <laughs> I this magazine would not be possible apart from colleagues and friends. Jill Wagner, Alex Ward helped especially and really led the charge with coming up with article ideas and authors and editing and all of that. Uh, Jacob Blaze is our graphic designer who's incredible. So all of the graphics, the cover, everything, he's just awesome. And then our former colleague and friend, Marie Delft, is working now at an organization specifically focused on issues of life, but she also helped tie this together. So it's definitely a collective effort, and um, I'm so thankful for the team that the Lord allows me to work on. 
And now it's time for the culture section, where we talk about the things going on in the world. Brent, what do you have for us today? Yeah, Lindsay, and so this week we were greeted with, as I kind of mentioned before, uh, big news on the abortion front, and specifically the abortion pill front. Uh, So the first story that we're talking about is actually in the Wall Street Journal. It says abortion pills to be available more widely under new FDA rules. The Food and Drug Administration expanded access to a drug that induces abortion, allowing bricks and mortar pharmacies to dispense the pills for the first time. Under the changes the agency issued Tuesday, any pharmacy can complete and sign a short form to become certified to provide the so-called abortion pill, not just the handful of mail-order pharmacies that were permitted to ship prescriptions during the pandemic. The moves won't change the availability of abortion for many women. A dozen states ban abortion throughout pregnancy, and 18 require a physician to be physically present with a patient to prescribe abortion pills effectively banning telehealth for abortions, according to the Guttmacher Institute, a nonprofit that tracks abortion statistics and supports abortion rights. More doctors, however, may sign up to be certified to prescribe abortion pills because they will no longer need to stock and dispense the medication as well. Some women who are concerned a family member or roommate might open a mailed package of pills might feel more comfortable filling a prescription at a pharmacy. The action will also likely deepen tensions between abortion supporters and opponents over access to the drug, which many women seeking to end their pregnancies have turned to, especially after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. So this obviously is a deeply concerning uh, development uh, because of just how more available these drugs are going to be. So yes, there are going to be those certain states where it's not going to have an effect. But in those states that don't have those kinds of limitations, this is just going to make abortion that much more easy to obtain. And um, that is a concern. Obviously, we we want to push back against abortion wherever uh, it, it might occur. But coming out of the Dobbs decision, this is going to be kind of one of those new ways that the the pro-abortion community uh, is is trying to make abortion just more accessible. And so we we have to to continue to be vigilant on this front. And we're thinking through, you know, various, whether it's legislative policies or just, you know, corporate engagement with some of these pharmacy chains that are out there to actually protect, you know, the conscience rights of individuals who who might be employed at those pharmacies. So this is this is this is going to have some far-reaching effects, and um, there's a, there's a lot of ground that'll be covered because of this. And if you're looking for a recap about what just happened regarding this decision, Jason Thacker wrote an explainer on our site titled "The FDA Expands Abortion Pill Access in Local Pharmacies," and at the top will be some of the information that you might find the most pertinent: what happened, what the ERLC is doing about it. Uh, some of the ethical issues involved. And then uh, below, it will describe more about how this decision was reached and and how the abortion pill works. So it's it's got a lot of information for you to read through and to digest as you think about this really sad development as it regards abortion in our society. In addition, that Light Magazine issue that I just recommended and talked about, uh, we had Chelsea Human write a piece, and it fits along these lines because it's titled, 
the twin frontiers of abortion in a post-ops world, the abortion pill and abortion trafficking. So those are two of the main areas where we will see uh, the abortion industry prey upon vulnerable women. So this abortion pill that is really, it's not safe for women. It goes without saying that it's not safe for the child, the preborn child, but it's not safe for women. There are dangers there. And there are, Jason talks about, there are more lax pharmacy policies regarding this. For instance, it's recommended up to 10 weeks, but some doctors are prescribing it up to 12 to 13 weeks. And then some are prescribing it for women who just feel like they might need it in the future. And the other area is abortion trafficking, which is where women are crossing state lines. If they live in a state where it's illegal, then they're they're traveling to go get abortions. So these are two areas that we need to be aware of. And it it's all the more apropos because this, this is in the news now and there's movement in the abortion pill arena. And the other big uh, item in the news that we've been watching uh, along with probably a lot of people out there because it's been trending on social media is the ongoing deliberations about who is going to be the next speaker of the House. And so this next story comes to us about this from NBC News. And it says, fierce Republican infighting over who should be the next speaker has paralyzed the House of Representatives, preventing lawmakers from being sworn in, delaying staff hiring, and stalling the GOP's legislative agenda. On Thursday, the House enters its third day of the new Congress without a speaker under the new GOP majority. Until Republicans have enough votes for a candidate, all other House business remains at a standstill. During the six speaker votes this week, 20 conservatives have stuck together to deny GOP leader Kevin McCarthy of California the 218 votes needed to win the Speaker's gavel. Because Republicans won a paper-thin majority in November, nearly all of their 222 members will need to agree on a pick for Speaker. The chaotic process moves to a seventh ballot when the House reconvenes at noon on Thursday. But while McCarthy allies and foes remain deadlocked on Wednesday, there were some real signs of progress. And it goes on to talk about some of those negotiations that happened late into the night uh, on Wednesday uh, where representatives for uh, Kevin McCarthy and and some of these these folks who have been voting against him did make some headway on a, on agreeing to some different elements. Uh, but as we have actually just learned as we started recording, that seventh ballot uh, has begun and he's he's already lost uh, more votes than than he can afford. So it it guarantees there will at least be an eighth round uh, of, of voting for speaker. And, you know, some folks are like, wow, this is, this is, uh, this is, this is pretty new. And it, it is, uh, we, we haven't actually seen uh, a race like this for speaker of the house uh, that went into a second ballot for 100 years. Uh, so there's, there's probably not many of us alive who remember uh, the last time that this this occurred, and um, there's there's various opinions about it, ranging from this is completely embarrassing to other folks saying, "Oh no, this is the the natural way of things." I would say this: we are not accustomed to this at all. Usually, these sorts of speaker votes they're highly orchestrated. Uh, everybody knows going in uh, how they're going to vote, and that's why uh, they they have tended to play out uh, with just one one ballot only being needed. If you go back into the 1800s, 
these sorts of votes were much more commonplace. And so, uh, so it, to, to call this unprecedented, can't, can't do that. Uh, there, there actually is lots of precedent for multiple rounds of, of voting to have occurred. But I think where people are saying, you know, this is kind of embarrassing. Well, it, it, it is, to that extent, embarrassing for uh, Leader McCarthy, who's, who's been the minority leader of the Republicans now for, uh, for a while. If folks may remember, he actually tried to run for speaker previously, back in the the middle of the the 2010s and um, was unsuccessful then, uh, but has been slowly charting a path back to uh, running for speaker. But uh, at this point, he's consistently lost about 20 votes. And uh, it's it's unclear yet if he's done enough to to even, you know, peel off uh, some of those votes. And folks, I think, We'll say, okay, well, this is this is pretty inside baseball for Congress. It is. Why is it important to us? Well, obviously, it's important to us as an entity uh, because we interact with uh, congressional leadership, and uh, we we want to know who we're who we're going to be uh, engaging with uh, as we you know provide things like our our forthcoming public policy agenda uh, and our engagement with various Capitol Hill offices. Uh, it's important to know who the Speaker of the House is and. Um, as it mentioned in the story, legislative business can't be conducted until this very first decision of each Congress is is carried out. So uh, we don't yet know, uh, you know, when this airs, we won't yet know how this this will play out. But there is some other reporting and some other outlets. This may actually spill over into uh, into next week. Uh, so who knows? We we might be back in the studio uh, before we know who the next speaker of the house is, Lindsay. Well, you you stole my first question, which was I'm why sorry. why does it matter? No, I read your mind. Yes, that's, you read my mind. That's what we should call it. Mind melding. The second question that I have would be, well, first a statement. I am so glad I am not in politics because just watching this play out, I would be stressed if this was my job. Second of all, so what does the House Speaker do? What's the House Speaker's responsibilities, especially as it pertains to our interaction with them? Yeah, so the the speaker has the responsibility first and foremost for organizing the house, right? So after uh, after the the speaker election, you start getting into conversations about committee structure and which members will be on which committees, and and so once you get that, then you can start the process of you know intaking you know legislative proposals and debating them and starting to pass them. So uh, this really is the first step in the functioning of the House of Representatives. At the same time, uh, they also are the the lead member of the respective party uh, that they're from. So uh, Republicans have, albeit a very slim majority, but it is expected that a House under Republican control will serve as a break on the Democratic agenda and certainly the, the uh, Biden administration's agenda. And um, but un- until until they get organized, they they can't effectively do that. So, and then obviously we we interact with the speaker's office here at the RLC. Uh, you know they are leading one of the the chambers of Congress, and uh, we oftentimes are petitioning them or advocating in front of them about what our priorities are be, whether it's on life, religious liberty, family, and so we. It's important for us to know who is occupying uh, that position so that we can appropriately address them with the issues that we're concerned about. 
Well, thank you for that clarification for somebody who doesn't understand inside baseball of Congress. <laughs> yeah, Congress can get uh, very archaic. I, I mean, the the only difference between what is playing out today versus what played out 130 years ago is there are C-SPAN cameras in the room. And, and so we can actually see this as it's happening, which is not something that uh, would have occurred, you know, over 100 years ago. So that's what's unique about this. Well, and no one member is beating another member with a cane. That's right. Happened. That's also a different, <laughs> that, that is also different. We, we don't, we don't have, uh, we don't yet have any fisticuffs uh, on the floor. Although as they were trying to adjourn on Wednesday night, things got a little, little dicey there for a minute. There was some shouting uh, as that, as that vote was being cast. Um, but hopefully it won't descend into that. At the same time, you know, one of the one of the the members uh, who was speaking on the floor yesterday, he was actually saying, "Look, this is this is actually what we should be doing. We should be in the room uh, debating uh, who who our next leader should be." And in some sense, I affirm that uh, that is what Congress should be doing. As a matter of fact, Congress should be doing that about lots of things, and instead of turning over lots of its authority to the executive branch. But I, I think a lot of folks are surprised that it's it's playing out right here on the very first decision that Congress has to make. Well, thank you for that rundown. You know that at the end of our conversation, I like to talk about something that usually it's I find interesting. Sometimes mm. it's fun, but this one isn't necessarily fun, but it is, I feel like it was a big cultural moment. And that's when, mon during Monday Night Football, a Buffalo Bills player uh, collided with another. It didn't look like a particularly hard hit to me. Just looked like a standard hit. The player, Damar Hamlin, stood up and just adjusted his, his face mask and then collapsed, collapsed, mm -hmm. fell on his back. And then, of course, players gathered around, were praying and crying, and they had to do CPR on the field, which I don't think commentators were saying they hadn't seen this in their yeah. NFL career. I mean, terrifying. And what's so uh, amazing about it is that it, you know, the Bible says eternity is set in the hearts of men. And I, I think it's made people realize the brevity of life. People were forced with, with our mortality, and it was shocking. And you were seeing uh, an ESPN uh, analyst, sports analyst, pray on TV, which is not a not, not something either. you normally yeah. see. And, mm -hmm. and, and another clip I watched was of this man, this analyst saying that his wife and his partner in the show, who he's friends with, were some of the most influential people in his life, and they are also deeply religious. And he said, but I'm not. And in these moments, I'm paraphrasing. He was saying, I'm, I'm jealous of the basically the hope that you have because in these dark moments, I don't have an anchor. And I thought that was just a honest reflection from somebody who doesn't, I don't know if he doesn't believe in God, I'm not sure. He, he said he was not deeply religious. And so it just it's just interesting how the Lord was using it to cause people to number their days, so to speak, as as the Psalms say. And apparently he's, Damar Hamlin is doing better and seems to be... Uh, he's awake. That's right. what it said. Yeah. So oh, that's what one one thing said, but and that he's neurologically intact. So that maybe, I'm assuming, not right, brain but didn't, dead. Didn't you say one of the, well, something, the report, the, yeah, it his said fellow he's teammates reported that he's awake? It said he's awake, but then I'm, I'm just waiting to get more reports oh, okay. on it. But then another thing that I thought was cool is he has this toy drive. He had started, I don't know if it was a GoFundMe or what, but a local toy drive for vulnerable children. And it ha I think it had $2,500 donation or something. It soared to over $3 million. Mm -hmm. 
or something like that. So that it's just again how the Lord uses something so terrible for good. Right. So I it's just been a obviously just striking and so sad situation, but but also just a so interesting to see the conversations that have been happening around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, the outpouring of support and and folks rallying around him and and donating to this this toy drive all of that is certainly encouraging uh you know we 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 live in a culture right now where we just we want to believe the worst about our neighbors and and this episode has has showed that people can come together still and and that's good and i'm i'm especially thankful uh that there are these encouraging signs from the hospital where he's at in in Cincinnati and you're right when it first happened you know, you're watching it and you're thinking, okay, well, that's that's a pretty routine hit. And the fact he got right up, uh, that's that's pretty normal in football. And then the fact that he fell down is also pretty normal. But then when you just saw immediately medical professionals getting there and his teammates taking it, you knew that it, it got very serious very quickly. And we're so accustomed to players getting hurt in football and, you know, eventually walking off or maybe even having to be, you know, put in a, like a golf cart and, and ridden up the field. But, but yeah, that, that was certainly scary. And so it's, uh, it, it seems like this is heading towards a positive uh, resolution and uh, we should continue praying for that. Here's a little tidbit of trivia for you as a baseball fan. So, so people have been talking about this and what might've been the cause, et cetera. And have you, you might have seen this online, but have you heard of commotio cordis? No. Commotio cordis? It refers to the sudden arrhythmic death caused by a low mild chest wall impact. So there's, so some people are saying that could have been an impact to the chest. It has to happen at just the right time or whatever. Right. But it, it, oh, because it interrupts in the electrical, right? Uh, yeah. It's seen mm-hmm. in athletes. Normally they're younger though, and it's not normal to happen in football. The sport it happens most often in is baseball. Did you know that? No. And this says it's seen most commonly in athletes between the ages of 8 to 18. Wow. So, no. baseball. So, um, pretty much putting my kids in a bubble. Never <laughs> letting them play anything. Thank you well, very much. I was going to ask, does, does, this, uh, does it make you less likely to want Grant uh, to, to play football when he gets oh, older? Have you all even had yeah. those conversations yet? Uh, not really, although I know my husband's probably on the same page. I used to want him to play football because I grew up in Florida. You you just, you play football. It's great. No. Mm-mm. Not since all the CTE stuff. You couldn't pay me to have my child play right. football. Sorry, right. all you football players out there. No way, Jose. Now, what if he develops an opinion of his own and says, Mommy, well, Daddy, I want to play football? <laughs> he's still living under my roof, and I'm assuming we're paying his bills, so he's not going to be playing football. Right. <laughs> He'll be playing something else. Well, we uh, we just want uh, Demar Hamlin uh, to get better and uh, for them to figure out exactly. I actually thought they wore some like a chest kind of protector underneath their shoulder pads, so I, I thought that they had more protection there than than maybe uh, I did. But yeah, we uh, we obviously want him to get better. Yes, we do, and we will be following this story, I'm sure, and. It is so good to be back with you. Listeners, although we can't see you, we know you're out there somewhere. Thank you for, I'm I'm imagining you were twiddling your thumbs waiting for us to come back with a new episode. That's just what I tell myself. But it's good to be back in the studio to see you, Brent, to see you, audio producer Mark over there behind the third, fourth wall or whatever it's called. And we look forward to being back with you next week. Absolutely. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. 
And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.